say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Straw Hut Media. This is Lucas Grinley from Next City, a show about change makers and their stories. Truth is, there are solutions to the problems oppressing people in cities. If you're listening, I hope it's because you want to spread good ideas from one city to the next city. On the show today, let's visit one of the most popular articles we've ever published on nextcity.org. It answers a commonly Googled question. How many cities are there in the world? There are lots of reasons the answer to this question matters, and it's not just about improving your trivia game, even though the author of this article was once a contestant on Jeopardy. How cool is that? To help us count up cities and dig into the very real socioeconomic consequences around what defines a city, I asked for some help from our reporter, Gregory Scruggs. So Greg, I don't know if you know this, but this story that you published for us was one of the most popular ever on Next City because people keep searching for the question, how many cities are there in the world? So why do you think people are so interested in how many cities there are in the world? And why is it so hard to figure out? There's a basic human curiosity about trivia type questions of that nature. And it is a harder question to answer than it might seem because it depends on what one's definition is of a city. And as it turns out, for a long time, every country in the world has had a different definition. And when uh, one country, let's say Denmark, says that uh, 200 people living near each other is a city, but over in Japan, 200, 200, <laughs> 200 people constitutes a city in Denmark. In Japan, you need at least 50,000 people living reasonably close together to call it a city. Uh, and so when each one of those uh, national governments, you know, usually their statistical office, like a Census Bureau equivalent, tallies up how many cities there are in country X, we find that we have this apples to oranges comparison between countries. And in fact, the numbers, you know, you, as they say, you put garbage in, you get garbage out. Uh, the, the data that we've been sort of putting into this global system of, of tracking the state of the world cities has actually not been terribly accurate for quite some time. Uh, and there are some researchers who, who said maybe we should do things a little more empirically. So how many cities are there? When the European Commission and the Organization for Economic Cooperation set out to answer that question, they first had to take a step back and answer a different question. What is a city? No two countries had the same way of defining a city, so they came up with a standard. A city would be defined as a contiguous geographic area with at least 50,000 inhabitants at an average population density of 1,500 people per square kilometer. So when they did this, there were some assumptions that had been made about how many people live in cities that turned out not to be true. Like there was a thing going around that we thought for the first time in human history, the world was majority urban back in 2007. Not true? Not true. 
very popular uh, claim to fame, not true. In fact, in 2015, only 48% of humanity lived in cities, according to the degree of urbanization definition. So where did all these people go that seem to be caught in the middle? And the answer is they live in towns. And one of the innovations of this methodology, this research project, is to say there's something in between living in a city and living in a rural area. Not everybody is either urban or rural. There's this thing in the middle called a town that in English is easily understood, but in many other languages, there's not an equivalent term. And that's why the Danes, for example, call their little 200-person hamlets cities, just as big as, say, Copenhagen. Or, well, not, not just as big, but just as city-like as Copenhagen in their definition, because there's apparently not a good Danish word for town. And the degree of urbanization researchers argue that urbanization exists on a spectrum. At one end of that spectrum would be a rural farmer that truly does not live near many other people. And at the other end would be a very dense high-rise apartment building or flat, or perhaps a crowded slum in a megacity. And in between, there's all kinds of ranges of, of ways that humans live around and near each other. And towns are this sort of chunk in the middle that have been largely ignored by demographers. But in fact, a good chunk of humanity lives in towns, and more importantly, towns are the world's future cities because towns grow. And as they grow, they eventually take on the density and thus the sort of the characteristics of, a, of an urban area. Not everyone is happy to have a standard definition of a city. It turns out governments have all kinds of reasons to call a place a city, or to pretend it isn't one. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of reasons why this stuff matters. Demography and our sense of where people live helps us determine how to allocate very large sums of money that go toward all kinds of development needs. Uh, where do we invest in new infrastructure, new schools, new hospitals, new public transit lines? A national government might, you know, under its constitution, uh, Egypt is a good example here, have some uh, some rules or some laws that you know, once you are a city, once you are a certain size, then the government's required to provide basic municipal services like education and healthcare. Uh, but when places on official maps are still listed as rural agricultural settlements, then the government's off the hook. They're, they're, they're not legally obligated to provide this. Uh, and yet there are scholars and, and researchers who have been to places with as many as 275,000 people in Egypt. Uh, you would think you might want a school or two in a place that large. But on paper, it's a rural agricultural settlement uh, because these, you know, these sort of jurisdictional uh, administrative boundaries haven't changed. But of course, the data doesn't lie. Satellite imagery doesn't lie. And wow. you, can, uh, you can see, in point of fact, that a lot of people live on what nominally is a rural agricultural settlement. Wow. That's stunning. A place where 275,000 people live is on paper called a rural location, and then you don't have to build schools and courthouses and things. That's really red tape. Yeah. That's... <laughs> but, but, but this is also why this, what seems innocuous, right? Some, some researchers using satellite data, doing a nerdy technical research project has very serious political ramifications. And so it's, it's touchy convincing governments to adopt this definition. Just because it's more accurate doesn't mean it necessarily serves whoever's in power's interest if they realize 
gee, if we use this definition, we're going to be on the hook to provide lots of urban services in places that we've historically ignored for whatever the reason may be. So the answer you've all been waiting for, how many cities are there in the world? After the break, we will talk with the lead researcher who answered a question that actually has lots of consequences. Next City is not your average news organization. As a nonprofit, we leverage donations, grants, and sponsorships to provide a hub for solutions to the challenges and opportunities shaping cities worldwide. We hope to help you discover the future of our communities with thought-provoking articles, in-depth research, and engaging content like this podcast. We rely on the support of listeners like you. You are our dedicated community who continues providing not only support, but also the inspiration for all of this valuable content that drives positive change. If you believe in our mission and want to contribute to the future of cities, we invite you to make a donation today. Your support will help us expand our coverage, conduct more in-depth research, and foster meaningful discussions. Join us in reimagining an equitable future. Visit nextcity.org slash donate to make a contribution. Together, we can spread good ideas from one city to the next city. Welcome back to Next City. On the show today, how many cities are there in the world? To find the answer, we caught up with Louis Dijkstra from Brussels in Belgium. As the head of economic analysis, he is the European Commission's lead researcher on the project that finally answered this big question. The number is, are you ready for it? Well, I'll let him tell you. So let's start with the big question for people, which is, so why is it important to know how many cities there are in the world? <laughs> it's a very good question. Well, we're trying to figure out how to make cities better places and how to help people who live in cities have better lives. Well, it'd be useful to know how many people live in cities, right? And to know how many people live in cities, you need to know how many there are and where they start and where they stop. So why didn't we know how many there were before? <laughs> well... We asked countries how many people live in an urban area. And then the countries are like, well, what's an urban area? And we said, well, you figure it out because it's <laughs> kind of hard. And so every country has one, two, three, four definitions of what is an urban area. Um, and different departments or ministries have different definitions. Sometimes different regions within the same country or different states have different definitions. And it was never very specific of what a city was. Um, so urban in some countries can include small towns. Uh, in other countries, it really only includes the, the largest cities in the country and ignores all the rest. So you had a total confusion about where in, say, the settlement hierarchy, urban stopped and rural started. And so we tried to solve that and say, OK, we want to have a city with at least 50,000 inhabitants. And then we also came up with a simple method to really define, OK, what is a city? How do you know there's 50,000 people there? And it's basically little squares that have a lot of people in them that are contiguous and that add up to 50,000. So a density of 1,500 per square kilometer and cells of one by one kilometer all contiguous and together they have to have 50,000. So globally, there's about 10,000 of them. 10,000 cities. These 10,000 cities contain almost half the global population while covering only about half a percent of the world's land. That is really 
yeah, an important discovery. I wonder what it is that you take from that discovery, though. Like, what what are the implications of knowing that? Well, urban density and city density is, is, is a heavily debated topic. Uh, some people say, oh, you need to have a certain density. There's, there's an ideal density. And other people say, well, you know, you let people drive as far as they want and live in as big as a house as they want. You just have to make it easier for them to drive further out. And so densities will drop and that's fine. Um, but this debate has largely been um, done in a vacuum, an empirical vacuum, where there are a lot of assumptions, very little empirical data inside this debate. And this is where the research intersects with another heated topic. Where do we build more housing? There is a housing shortage in the United States. No matter where you live, you've heard debate about the traffic or environmental damage that is alleged to come with almost any proposed construction. One group in Connecticut opposed developing affordable housing because they said the new building would interrupt the scenic viewscape when driving along the nearby highway. By the way, they won. The building had to be made smaller. With this research, we finally have data about what kind of density is normal. What I really take away from this is that there are very many different situations. You have cities that are dense and de-densifying. You have cities that are dense and are densifying. The density as such doesn't necessarily tell you whether it's a good place to live or not. Uh, really, what makes it a good place to live is that you have enough room to live in, that you know, don't live in a crowded dwelling, that you have enough room at your work, and that you can get easily from A to B and in a safe uh, and ideally in a environmentally sustainable manner. So what we now more argue is that if you have a very high density, uh, it makes sense to, to reduce the density a little bit, uh, and that won't have a big impact on, say, the amount of investments that you need or the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that you produce as a city with the population that you have. You have very low densities. It's going to be very difficult to provide efficient public transport, so you're going to be looking at a very high car share. So in some cases, it would make sense to try and become a little denser, but far from all. Um, and the last thing is also it's important to cluster population around public transport stops um, so that you really, if you're going to encourage density uh, or if you're going to maintain density, it's especially important to do that along public transport corridors. So in many ways, it's it's a mixed mixed story. Uh, you, know, you want the right kind of density, the density that still allow people to have good accessibility, but also a high quality of life. So it's trying to strike the balance right. You know, at least in the U.S., we're talking about density, which is really a word that covers a lot of heated arguments that happen, right, about zoning and whether there should be a big building nearby. And uh, I wonder if you have any advice on those conversations uh, from your work. I know the U.S. quite well. I did my Ph.D. there. My wife's American, so I, I spent some time there. Um it's very difficult to take the sting out of those debates because a lot of people come to those debates with strong assumptions. The first thing I would say is um, don't necessarily equate higher density with a reduction in your quality of life. And don't necessarily assume that higher density living is automatically low income living. Um, I think higher density living can be incredibly attractive and very appealing. And I've, I've seen various bits of research about the US and actually one bit of research showed that 
in relation to what people want when you know they get to pick between different types of locations, the U.S. actually underprovides the type of mixed use, moderate density living that a lot of people express an interest in. So the U.S. is is quite unique in the sense that it's very extreme in the tendency for everybody to live in single family homes, you know, fully detached with a yard, which makes it very difficult for people to actually have a choice in terms of modal split. They, they don't have a choice in the sense that it's impossible to provide efficient public transport. Most destinations are too far to walk. So I think in some places in the U.S. you can find very attractive, moderate density, mixed-use neighborhoods that are incredibly appealing. And I think the U.S. could use a lot more of those. Um, but it's important to emphasize that this won't necessarily re- lead to lower property values or more congestion or more crime. I think the key thing is to make sure that people can have an alternative mode. If you do provide people the opportunity of walking to school or walking to a restaurant or cycling to a shop, you know, the impact on traffic is going to be much lower. And as a result, you also have a more attractive or more lively streetscape, again, which has a plus. You know? And so I think if I look around in the U.S., I see quite a few neighborhoods that have succeeded in becoming both high in terms of quality of life, but also moderate in terms of its density. And I think that more people want to live in those locations, which means we need to build more of them, right? And right now, you know, the housing crisis in the U.S. in terms of affordability is massive. And if we were to allow people to replace some of those single-family homes with, uh, you know, a multifamily uh, dwelling, it will help a lot uh, to, to, to respond to that crisis. And then the last thing I would say is that, you know, single-family housing was designed with this idea that we all are part of a nuclear family, you know, two parents, kids. And the truth of the matter is, of course, a lot of households still look like that, but a growing number of households don't. And, you know, they might be two seniors or a single person or, you know, a couple without kids. And they're often don't, they're not looking for a large location. They're not looking for a large house. They're much better off in a condominium with a nice terrace where they can easily walk to nearby amenities. And I think that really is an excellent quality of life, which is not available or difficult to find in many American cities. And so I think if you look throughout your life and the life of your friends, you could easily see that a lot of people would actually prefer not to live in a very suburban setting. When we come back, these studies are allowing researchers to compare the world's cities to each other accurately for the first time. What have they discovered? New insights on how people in cities live and what they need after the break. This episode of Next City is based on a story we first reported on nextcity.org. If you want journalism that centers marginalized voices, If you want to ensure solutions to the problems that oppressed people in cities don't get overlooked, then subscribe to Next City's daily newsletters. Thousands of city planners, designers, placemakers, and urbanists like you read Next City every day. Together, we learn what's new and different in driving solutions in cities. Next City believes change is happening and makes it our job to find it. Signing up for our newsletters is the best way to stay informed on the issues that matter. To subscribe now, head to nextcity.org newsletter and enter your email address. 
That's nextcity.org newsletter. Welcome back to Next City. On the show today, how many cities are there in the world? As researchers sought the answer to this question, they found many more questions. Here again is Lewis Dykstra. We created this definition to help cities learn from each other. Because we have this definition and this boundary, we can now say, okay, in which city is it easier to walk to a bus stop or a tram stop? And why is that easier? What makes it easier? In what cities can you easily walk to a green space? And these are sustainable development goals indicators with harmonized definitions of how to calculate that. But now we also have a harmonized definition for the boundaries. So a city in Africa compare itself to a city in Asia or Latin America or Europe. And so that really opens uh, a lot of doors. And in a way, I'm, I'm an urban planner. And I would argue that a lot of urban planning started with stories, you know, this is what happened in this city. This is what happened in that city. There were interesting stories. We could learn a lot from them. But now we're also able to match those stories with numbers and understand why in some cities uh, it works better. And so see if that, what can we learn from that? Can we replicate that somewhere else? How can we make city life more attractive? What's an example of something that we've learned so far in those comparisons between cities? But when it comes for density, for example, we, we've learned that if you have a low density in your city, say 1,000 inhabitants per square kilometer or 1,500 inhabitants per square kilometer, if you want to provide public transport to, say, 80% of the population living there, it's going to be very expensive to do so because you're going to need a lot of tram lines, a lot of bus lines. You're going to need a lot of stops. They're going to have to drive for long distances, and it's not going to be very easy for a lot of people to walk there. So the benefit of moving to a not moderate density, say four to 6,000 inhabitants per square kilometer, are substantial. You really make a massive reduction in the amount of lines that you need, the length of those lines, and so you can have higher frequency on the lines that you do. So there you see a big gain. Um, moving from, say, six to 10,000 inhabitants per square kilometer doesn't really add a lot. It reduces lengths a little bit, but it doesn't really represent a massive gain. So there is a bit of a sweet spot. In smaller cities, walking and cycling can really easily cover a large share of the trips within that city because distances tend to be relatively short. But the key thing there is it's not just about the distance. It's also about the experience and, and the safety of that experience. Traffic safety is, is a big issue uh, and pedestrians and cyclists are not surrounded by a whole chunk of metal, <laughs> so they're at higher risk if they get hit by a car. So if you want to make sure that walking and cycling is popular, you have to make it attractive, you have to make it safer, and this can help. Um, this can help easily in smaller cities, but even in medium-sized cities, in cities with around a million, uh, you have a lot of places that are very attractive for walking and cycling to nearby destinations and, and, and convince a large share of the population to do so happily and safely. So that's another thing that we can learn from each other. Okay, what does it take? It's not just about making sure origins and destinations are relatively close, but it's also about making sure that you have the right infrastructure. Have you been able to learn anything about differences in income equality as it relates to density in a city or shown anything, any interesting insights about inequities that might exist? 
when it comes to inequalities, you, you have a variety of, of ways of looking at that. You have interpersonal inequalities when it comes to income. You also have spatial inequalities between different neighborhoods. And to large part, you know, they, they, they overlap, but they are distinct. Um, and so, for example, if you have a slum or a favela, you'll find a large concentration of, of very poor people living there with, with unsecured tenure rights, etc. And there you get a, a strong overlap of, you know, individual personal poverty and the spatial concentration of poverty. Spatial concentration of poverty can have uh, a number of negative effects in the sense that they may not be able to have as good access to uh, to services or um, crime might be higher or you know public space might be absent um, part of this is a market mechanism that directs poor people to the poorest houses which are often in, in locations that are less desirable but the interesting thing about where poor people live is that it's um, highly variable take for example many u.s cities you'll have a high concentration of the poor in the inner city or in the first ring of inner city suburbs if you will and then in other cities, you'll have an extremely affluent city center and the poor will live on the outskirts. So there is no predefined location of the poor. And it really depends on the quality of the environment, the alternatives, the accessibility, the safety. For example, in South Africa, you have a lot of townships that are located on the edge of the city, often in a location which is very far from the city center uh, with poor public transport. And so that's very difficult for them then to go and find a job. And it's very time consuming because they're located very far away. So what can we learn from this? I mean, I think it's key to consider both the cost of housing together with its location, knowing where people live, knowing where the poor people live, knowing where the public transport is and learning about how to improve that is really critical. One thing together with this definition of a city that's really important is to understand the distribution of population within a city and especially by income, because obviously that will determine to a large degree what type of mode of transport they can afford. So the last thing I'll ask you is just, we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who work in cities. Is there anything that they could be doing to help you? Is there anything you want them to do? Well, one of the things I... I try and convey, and I think I need some help there, is that city living is green living. For me, living in a city means that you, you can have a car, but you don't necessarily have to use it all the time. You live in a house, but it doesn't have to be a massive house. You know. And as a result, I think if we want to live more sustainably, living in a city should be an appealing option. But we shouldn't price people out. Right now, the most sustainable places we can live in often are the most expensive places to live in. And that's wrong. And furthermore, they also tend to be some of the most productive locations in them. People can't live in the cities where the jobs are the most productive and where living is, from an energy point of view, the most efficient. So my plea really out there is to think of city living as something that needs to be promoted, needs to be embraced, and needs to be inclusive. It shouldn't be a realm just for the super rich, nor should it be a ghetto just for the super poor. It should be appealing and democratic, open to everybody. And that's what I would plead, that more city planners should spread that message. 
because I don't think a lot of people realize the, the benefits of urban living for, for, for individuals, but also for societies and the environment. Yeah, cities can be good for the planet. Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Next City, a show about changemakers and their stories. Together, we can spread good ideas from one city to the next city. Thank you for listening this week. Thank you to Greg Scruggs, who first reported this story for Next City. Thank you to everyone who Googled the story and found it. Thank you to our guest, Louis Dykstra, the lead researcher with the Degree of Urbanization Project at the European Commission. Our audio producer is Silvana Alcala. Our scriptwriter is Francesca Mamlin. Our executive producers are Tyler Nielsen and Ryan Tillotson. And I'm Lucas Quinley, Executive Director for Next City. By the way, Next City is a news organization with a nonprofit model. If you like what we're doing here, please consider pitching in to support our work. Visit nextcity.org membership to make a donation. We would love any feedback from our listeners. Please feel free to email us at info at nextcity.org. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.